Greetings, and welcome to another edition of Doc's Talk, the official podcast of the King County Medical Society. I'm your host and producer, Josh Kearns. Healthcare-related bills are dominating this session of the Washington State Legislature with dozens under consideration, from mental health funding to immunization exemptions to increased B&O taxes. There's no shortage of legislation that will have a direct impact on doctors. I recently traveled to Olympia with our president, Dr. Teresa Girolami, and CEO Nancy Belcher. We participated in the WSMA's Legislative Day, and we met with a number of lawmakers and staff members to advocate for our physicians. Among the most important and influential we met up with is Representative Eileen Cody, the chair of the House Health Care and Wellness Committee. Cody recently retired after working for the past 40 years at Group Health and then Kaiser. She's a neuro rehab nurse certified in both rehabilitation nursing and MS care. And in addition to her work, she's also a founding member of District 1199 Northwest, the SEIU Hospital and Healthcare Employees Union. Cody's the longest serving House member and certainly among the most knowledgeable, if not the most knowledgeable legislator when it comes to healthcare issues. And despite her jam-packed and hectic schedule, she was kind enough to take some time this past week to visit with me and share her insights with you in this special edition of Doc's Talk. I hope you enjoy it. Represent, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. I know things are, are crazy busy. How many bills are actually out there? I, mean, I know that when we had a chance to hear from you several weeks ago, I mean, there were there are hundreds and hundreds of healthcare related bills in play. We reached the legislative cutoff, uh, but still quite a few healthcare related issues that uh, you'll be working through over the next, well, couple of months now, right? Right. We sent 52 bills uh, out of the House Health Care Committee. And from your perspective, uh, at, at this point, 52, obviously not everything passes. You merge, you purge. What are the, the most important issues to you this session? Well, uh, mental health is a huge, behavioral health is a huge issue that we're spending a lot of time on this session. As I know you are aware that uh, we have problems at Western State and the decertification of Western State from the federal government has really... Uh, brought, I would say, the legislature together in uh, focusing on behavioral health. So we really have been spending a huge amount of time, both with capital budget and operating budget, looking at what are our next steps and trying to put together a 10-year plan of uh, where are we going to go with behavioral health. So uh, I think that the most exciting thing that I can say about that is that it really is a bipartisan effort that I don't think that we... We, there's there's not been really any arguments that I would say are partisan divides. Uh, we may disagree amongst each other which direction we're going, but it's not on party lines. It's uh, just trying to figure out whether we want, you know, focusing on building the new hospital that the University of Washington will run to be a training hospital. That We all agree on that. Uh, I think it's more where are we going to put the rest of our resources that we're trying to, to figure out. So that's probably the biggest topic. And then, of course, opioids, our response to opioids, we governor requests legislation on that that is moving forward. Um, also, we have uh, well, some, some more bills on behavioral health integration that kind of fit in with the, that mental health discussion. And then balance billing is uh, a big issue that we hope to get resolved finally this year. And uh, then, uh, of course, the public option. 
And yet, let's go back to, to mental health first of all. And one of the big concerns I hear from so many physicians, especially primary care physicians, they're essentially being asked at the front lines to do a lot of uh, preliminary psychiatric evaluation, and then perhaps they determine a patient requires more care, and there's nowhere to send them. Even within within your uh, your district, and here in King County, you obviously have a number of facilities uh, of healthcare systems. How do we want Western state is one thing, but for those who are not criminally uh, in need of incarceration immediately or that care, how do we start to handle the early stages so that perhaps we can prevent the problems that have emerged so much further down the line? You, as a longtime healthcare professional, have seen this obviously up close. What are some of the steps that uh, you think we can do legislatively to help the system from beginning to end rather than just simply at the end game? Well, I think that we have made the movement towards that with the behavioral health integration and having medical medical care and psychiatric care be under the same funding stream as we, and King County just has gone to uh, that the beginning of this year. So now uh, all of King County, the managed care organizations are are providing the mental health uh, payments also. So uh, that hopefully will make some changes so that instead of, uh, I can you know remember through my years at Group Health, if people were on Medicaid, we didn't deliver their mental health care. They had to go down the street to a different provider. And that's just not the way that healthcare should be delivered. And I think that by doing the integrations now, that uh, that's, I mean, I know a lot of your doctors are seeing that in, in the primary care setting is that it's the expectation that primary care will know a little bit more about mental health and that they will be able to bill for it and, uh, and get reimbursed, which also helps have people focus on, on issues. So uh, I think that we're moving in the right direction. It's really making sure that we get everybody trained appropriately. Uh, and I think that, you know, God knows when I went through nine nursing program, mental health has changed. So uh, uh, I think that all of us are, it's incumbent to, to uh, you know, think about that in our continuing education programs and also for the state to provide more opportunities uh, for support. And we're looking at doing that through uh, telemedicine for uh, providers to be able to to hook up with a psychiatrist to get some help uh, in how to deal with patients. Well, and then, you know, the other one is we need more beds, obviously. Well, that, yes, we need more beds, and that's actually we're trying to work with the community hospitals to uh, have them providing more care. It shouldn't all be uh, on the state to build uh, the facilities. Uh, We're, you know, the state of Washington, people will talk about how we are underbedded, and it's true, uh, we are like 49th, I think, in the country, maybe even 50th, uh, on the number of beds. But if you look at the number of public beds, we are actually up in about 22, 22. You know, it's we are very reliant on the publicly funded beds instead of the private sector actually uh, providing bedded beds. And so I've been saying for years that it's not acceptable to people that they would go to a hospital and not be able to get their broken leg fixed. So I don't understand why it's been acceptable that you can't go into the hospital and expect to receive psychiatric care. 
So I think that's one of the, the societal changes that we need to make. Absolutely. Obviously, you bring a tremendous amount of experience to the table from your years in the field. When it comes to physicians having their voices heard, how do you, when you are both uh, crafting legislation but also considering legislation that's brought to you, how do you make sure that all of the constituencies, especially, for example, the physicians who have to deal so often with the policies, how do you make sure that their voices are heard and that their issues are considered so that it is not just a bunch of bean counters and bureaucrats making health care policy? Well, uh, obviously, I work closely with the State Medical Association. Uh, now, we may not always agree, but I certainly meet with them uh, at least a weekly basis, if not more often. And, uh, and because I have been a nurse for 100 years, uh, or at least it seems like that, uh, I certainly know a lot of physicians and, and have talked to a lot of physicians. And since I've been in the legislature for 25 years, I've met um, legis- or, uh, doctors from across the state and uh, know the, some from different specialties. So if it's a specific issue, uh, that I need to talk to them, you know, to ask, like the emergency room physicians. I can, uh, you know, anesthesiologists. I I have people that I uh, can reach out to and ask questions about it. And hopefully, we're going to start working. Uh, we're, we become much more activist as an organization. We have the largest delegation of the WSMA, so hopefully, we will be working closer with you and your staff and the committee staff over the the coming months uh, once we get through session here. Um, one issue that's that's been a big one that, that sort of popped up, uh, I know it's been talked about in the past, that's immunization policy and, and removing the, the personal and philosophical exemption. Seems like that suddenly all we had to do was have a measles outbreak and, and everybody thought that, that this is probably a good idea to do this. Your thoughts on on where we're at with that, and is this just going to sail through because of the measles outbreak we've had? Well, I wouldn't say it's going to sail through, but I hope that we have uh, got some momentum that we'll be able to get something passed this year. You know, we have brought up, it was just a few years ago that we finally changed it so that the personal exemption that you had to at least go in and have it signed, get discussed with your doctor about immunizations and then have the doctor sign that you'd had the discussion before they could do the personal exemption. And that was a bill that took several years to even get passed. So uh, the interesting thing about immunizations is that it's not so much a political or a partisan issue. It's the far left and the far right kind of joined together on this one. Um, And it's so it's and they're very passionate on the issue. and, it, and, you know, it's been interesting. I've had doctors that uh, are, have written me about not believing in immunizations, too. So uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's a universally agreed-upon topic, but uh, certainly most of the medical community supports the idea of the immunizations, and, and it tries to encourage it. So I, I have hopes that we will get something passed this year. Right. Right. Uh- a big issue that we're going to be hearing a lot about both statewide as well as nationally over the next two years, Medicare for all, single payer, everything under that umbrella. Your thoughts, I know the governor has his own ideas, his own proposal, uh, both the, the, the reality of it, um, it, you know, sort of what do you think the landscape and the appetite are for that? And, and 
how do we do it so that it doesn't totally blow up the existing system? Um, is there even a route to that? Well, the uh, I've been working on the public option, which the, is the, with the governor um, throughout the the some last summer in this session. And the reason why we are going that direction is it's actually something that we could accomplish without federal waivers. Uh, to you know, and when we talk about Medicare for all, I think sure you've seen some of the articles that have been written that it means something different to everybody. Uh, and I think that it's exciting that there's more momentum now for moving towards more more government uh, involvement in healthcare. I I actually think that that that's the direction we should go, but uh, I think the the problem with just saying when you say single payer is that it doesn't work unless it's really done on a federal level because it it's going to take the congress to make the decisions that uh at least if i mean if if they're going to want us to do it on a state level they have to give us the ability to get waivers in medicaid medicare and erisa because the uh employer market is where most people 51 percent of our insurance comes through the employer market so that's that's where we have difficulties because you got to get them all in if it's going to if you're going to really say it's single payer. Uh, so when you ask whether I think what's really available or what we could do, I think if we at least allowed uh, could merge some of the markets, so the individual markets, so that they could buy in to uh, well, we would love to be able to let them buy it into the state uh, state employees plan, but that doesn't work because of labor law. I've looked at because I had looked into that um, buying into Medicare. If, if anybody could buy into Medicare, I think that was uh, that's probably the easiest thing that we could do. And uh, so I guess on a federal level, I'd like to see him allow that. Right. Yeah. You know, and obviously, uh, you know, those of us who have my wife has been at Starbucks 25 years. I have fabulous coverage. I, I'm all for you know providing health care to all, but I don't want to give up mine, and I'm with a lot of people who don't want to give. And then, of course, physicians, our audience, concern very much about reimbursement rates and everything. I know nobody can ever be totally happy, but is there a way for us to keep the some of the best parts of the current system while still pro expanding care? Or Because so many proposals seem to be either or. Well, I think that that's what Medicare buy-in would at least do is is uh, use the current system and allow people to get uh, access in into insurance. But, I mean, if you, like, I will tell you that when we had the hearing on the public option bill that uh, there were individuals that came down and a few physicians, actually, that... Uh, said, no, you don't do this, that that just buys into the insurance industry and, and, and continues the insurance industry. We need to get rid of the insurance industry completely and that the government should just basically take it over. I, I do not see that as a viable option in any anytime soon uh, because just the amount of people that would then, we would have to like build our, the, the infrastructure within government to, to run that the same kind of thing, the insurance industry. Uh, so I don't think that we necessarily need to do it that way. I just think having a a single purchaser is much with through 
and run it through the insurance industry and put more limits on what they, you know, whether they can have a surplus the way we have now uh, and, and what their margins are. I think that rate setting is in the future. I, I'll do that prediction, both for hospitals and doctors, uh, because that's, it, you know, we just cannot continue to see the inflation that we are seeing with uh, the cost of health care and continue at, on the path we're on. And then lastly, I know that you know, one of the uh, key legislative issues for the WSMA and, and our board has also endorsed uh, the, the, the notion of opposition to an increase in the B&O tax on physician services. And yet, you know, I was talking to David Frock the other day and, and a number of your fellow members. There's, there, there, we have to have more money, and, and there are very few places that you guys can go to, especially after McCleary, to go find the money, right? It, it, it seems like sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to increasing the B&O tax. Right. No, I would agree, and I, because that's actually where you can go to raise money quickly. You know, even if we do a capital gains tax or other taxes, it doesn't come in uh, as, as, you know, it's not a system that's already set up. So the B&O tax is at least something that's already in place. So you could at least uh, increase it for a short period of time until the other ones kick in or, you know, do something like that. Uh, I will say I'm not on finance, so I don't know what all the discussions are at this point on on that. So don't take anything I say as a prediction of what we're doing. <laughs> right. More, I just, yeah, more, more, I meant more philosophical and pragmatically speaking there. Right, right. That's definitely, uh, that's, that's exactly, I mean, it's, we have to look at how we can raise money to be able, I mean, I will tell you what's been shocking for me this session, and I'm, you know, this is my 25th session, I'm the longest serving in the House. Uh, this has been probably as grim a year as we have had since the recession, or, you know, that's the only time I can think that it was any worse than it is right now in uh, trying to figure out how we're, what we're gonna spend money on and what we can, what we can and can't do. All of the, the, the talk about our excess revenue that, that has come in goes towards its exact same amount as what the bow wave on McCleary settlement is. For, it's like $4.2 billion, I believe, that's going towards the schools. So uh, there isn't any money. The first thing I tell people when they come in and they're looking for rate increases or changes in uh, you know, new programs is, you know, we don't have any money, right? And so... Uh, I will just pass that on to all your listeners. We don't have any money. Well, and that's such a misunderstanding. But, you know, so people look around so much, especially with the, economic, the the growth we've seen in King County specifically, and think there must be more tax revenue, and they don't understand the mechanics of, of what happened. Pre- and we haven't seen a revenue forecast yet. There's a good chance that that's lower, and then, you know, your, your arms tied behind your back even more. So it's going to be an interesting, just an interesting conversation, but I do appreciate that I want to convey that perspective to our our listeners that you guys don't have a ton of money to work with. There. No, we don't, and I'm I'm worried about that revenue forecast as as is most everybody on the appropriations committee. And then, last, anything else you would like to share with uh, this captive group of physicians here? Your thoughts, your goals for the future, ways that uh, you you know you would love to interact with them, or things that you'd want them to think about. Well, I guess I would just always encourage them to be more, to pay more attention politically. Uh, I've always been amazed that, uh, and I, I will say it's all healthcare providers, but at, 
but since the doctors and nurses are the most educated, I guess I get the most more surprised is that when I would go back to work getting asked about Congress, and I would always have to point out that I was in the legislature, not Congress, and or people asking me when I would go be in session, and they didn't even know when session was. So it's, you know, when, when you're somebody that's elected and you're wrapped up in it, maybe uh, I'm a little insulated, and I think everybody else should know as much about it, but it just has always surprised me uh, how little people do know about what we do in Olympia or when we're even here. <laughs> well, and the fact that you make 40 bucks a day or whatever it is that you get. Whatever it is. <laughs> oh, it's a little more. You're not than doing it for day. the money. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know my, my husband has been asking me for years when the graft and corruption is going to start. <laughs> <laughs> real, real. Lastly, real quick, just a follow up to that. Does it make a difference when people send an email, pick up the phone, um, lobby? You know, we we are always asking our members to do just that. Do you actually listen to the public? I yes, but I'd say what makes the most difference is, uh, uh, you know, maybe it's because I'm old fashioned, but actually, a letter, a real letter <laughs> with a stamp on it. Uh, is so rare these days that you yeah, you read those. You make sure that you read those because somebody took the time to do it. Uh, I email. I look at all my email, but I would say that when it's uh, the blanket email that all that we know was generated by, you just fill in your name and it gets sent, and it's exactly the same email that everybody sends. Uh, those, I mean, you you know how many you got, but that doesn't have the same kind of impact as somebody that actually writes a thoughtful email that, you know, is from their own personal perspective. Uh, so I, I guess that uh, I would encourage that. And then the thing I always tell people is that try and get to know your, your legislator personally when they're not in session. You know, tr try, you know, all of us do, I, even though I don't drink coffee, I have a coffee shop that I meet in regularly and meet constituents and meet and try and meet with people. And uh, that's the time to, to build a relationship so that then when you send the email during session about something that you care about, they'll remember that they've met you and pay more attention. Well, and I think, too, back to your point real quick, Millie, just simply the fact that you're only there for 60 and 90 days a year and the rest of the time you're in West Seattle and you, you, you can be much more effective if you build a relationship. Jerry Paulette and I run into each other all the time in the grocery store. And we'll stand in the aisle and talk for 20 minutes. And much more effective than waiting until the day before the legislative cutoff and hope that you're going to pick up the phone and do something for me. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, knowing, saying, talking to people in the interim is much better because we have more time. We can actually sit down and have a thoughtful conversation. All of my uh, appointments during session, if you get 15 minutes, you're doing good. Absolutely. Well, listen, I hey, we just got 30 from you, so we are so grateful. Thank you for your continued service. Good luck with the next 100 years in the legislature. <laughs> Not going to be around that long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, believe that. I, you know, one of those things, being a nurse, is that I always have to tell people, you got to die of something. <laughs> well, let's hope that yours is natural causes and a, a long time down the road, Madam Chair. Thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to seeing you after the session is over. All right. You take care. And that's a wrap on this edition of Doc's Talk. Thanks again to Representative Eileen Cody for her generosity in sharing her very limited free time with us. 
I am your host, Josh Kearns, and remember, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud to get each episode of Docs Talk delivered right to your preferred audio device whenever I post them, or you can just listen straight from the website. And if you'd like to participate in an upcoming episode or have an idea for a great guest, please drop me a line, jkearns at kcmsociety.org. Thanks again for listening, and take care. Thank you.